Um, let me give a little quick recap of what we talked about last week. Right? Paul spent several chapters, many chapters, dealing with issues that are going on within the Corinthian church. And then he came last week to a place where he, had, he started a new thought. And the new thought was, here, listen, we need to be reminded of what the church is built upon. We need to be reminded of the gospel. He said to them, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. All this stuff that we've talked about, yes. Do those things need to be corrected? Do those things need to be fixed? Of course they are. Of course they do. But we're not going to do it without the gospel. So we need to get back to the, what's the, the basics here of the faith and the gospel that I preach to you. Okay? And then, and, then, and then Paul, he gave uh, a, a, a little bit of a reminder of all of the people that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, okay? And if you remember, we talked about that because there's a group within the church that does not believe that the resurrection of the dead can take place, okay? And that's, that's kind of problematic, as we're going to see today, okay? But... Paul is going to spend the rest of chapter 15, no small amount of ink over the next three weeks, talking about the resurrection and how important it is and what that looks like for you and I as believers at the end of time and affirming that that is because Christ was raised. Okay? So he spends a lot of ink in this chapter talking about the resurrection, and we're going to get we're going to get into the meat of it here today. I'm not going to read the whole text because that would take several minutes, and I don't really want to use all. No, we got time. Let's read the whole text. We're going to read all 22 verses together. We like reading scripture, right? We're a scripture church, so we're going to read a big chunk of scripture here. Starting in verse 12, God's word says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, is, that, uh, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by one man came death, by a man, uh, by man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power." For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> if the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts to Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. Amen? Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning. I need your help. I have nothing of value to say. Would you just expose your word to us? Teach us. Would your spirit carry it into the depths of our hearts? Would, you, would your spirit transform our minds by it? Would you allow us to hear the warnings if the dead are not raised? But would you also allow us to hear the glory of the resurrection of the dead? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 12, we just read, Paul asked the questions. Paul asked the question, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say the dead are not raised? Okay, so Paul poses the question. And then what he's going to do is there's a debate tactic called syllogism. Anybody in here ever been in an actual formal debate before? No. Awesome. You know what syllogism is? Okay, so here's what, here's what Paul is going to do. Okay, he's going to grant, a syllogism is when someone is debating another person, they grant that person a, a premise, and then in order to show that premise to be false, they carry that premise to its logical conclusion. Does that make sense? So this is what Paul is doing right here. He's going to grant them the fact that the dead cannot be raised, and then he's going to carry that fact to its logical conclusion in order to show them their error. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so he's gonna do this in two different ways. He's gonna do this theologically and then he's gonna do this practically, okay? So those are my first two points. I'm gonna give you the first point right here, okay? First point is Paul's theological conclusions if the dead are not raised. That's point number one, okay? Let's work. There are six things by my count. You could maybe put seven in there. We're going to do six. Six things that Paul concludes if the dead are not raised. Theological conclusions, okay? Everybody ready? I'm not. First thing, first theological conclusion if the dead are not raised. Christ himself is not raised. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. It sounds simple, right? But here's the problem. Jesus said he was going to be raised. He predicted it. In John chapter 2, we, don't, we won't go to the verses, but in verses 19 through 20, he says, hey, you're going to tear down this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. He prophesied and predicted his own resurrection. So, if he's not raised and the dead are not raised, we have a problem here. You see, C.S. Lewis said that there are only three things when you're confronted with Jesus. There are only three conclusions that you can make. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's, a, or he's the Lord. And in claiming that he was going to raise himself from the dead, he's claiming lordship. He's claiming to be God Almighty. And so if he's not raised and the dead are not raised, he's actually a liar and not to be worshipped or followed or listened to at all. And the Jews were right to kill him as a blasphemer if he's a liar. If he was not who he claimed to be, then they were right to kill him as a blasphemer of God because that is blaspheming God. If you claim to be God and you're not God, that, that doesn't get a more higher level of blasphemy than that, right? Yeah, right? And his death is of, to no value of no value to anyone at all. I didn't say that right. His death is of no value to anyone at all. 
Second thing. Preaching and faith are in vain. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So, so anytime someone comes up here, what I'm doing right now is completely useless. We might as well just pack it up and go home if, if, if Jesus is not resurrected. We might as well just take it to the house and have some people over and, you know, watch football this afternoon. What are we doing here? Let me give you, let me give you a little, little rundown of Paul's work as an apostle. From 40 to 44 AD, Paul preached in Tarsus for four years, preached the gospel. Then he went to Antioch where he preached the gospel for one year. Then he went with Barnabas to Jerusalem. And in 51 AD, uh, sorry, in 46 or 47 AD, he went on his first missionary journey. And that missionary journey lasted two years. In 51 AD, he went on his second missionary journey. That lasted three years. 18 months of that was in Corinth, where he, where he started this church. 54 AD, he went on his third missionary journey. He was on preaching the gospel on that missionary journey for four years. Three of those were in Ephesus. Then he was arrested and he was in Caesarea, and he would preach the gospel there in Caesarea while he was in house arrest. Then he went to Rome, and he was on house arrest, in house arrest in Rome for two years, where he continued to preach the gospel while he was under house arrest from 61 to 63 AD. And then, it, it's not recorded in the scriptures, but it's alluded to, Paul went on a fourth missionary journey. And that, he left on that missionary journey in 63 AD. And that missionary journey lasted approximately three years. And then in 67 or 68, he gave his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Twenty-eight years of traveling around the world, preaching the gospel, starting churches, and we'll get to it later, having his life almost taken from him multitude of times. If Christ is not raised, those 28 years of Paul's life are useless. That's how important the resurrection is. And I was talking to Scotty just before I came in here. You see, the resurrection is one of the most least talked about parts of the gospel. We talk about Jesus' perfect life. We talk about him sacrificing himself for, for our sins. But none of that matters if he's not raised from the dead. None of it. That's one thing that Andy Stanley gets right. That's about the only thing he gets right, is that the resurrection is the most important part of the Christian faith. And that's true. He just says it to the, you know, he just, never mind. That's, never mind. The resurrection is crucial. There is no Christianity. There is no faith. There is no reason for preaching the gospel without it. Preaching is in vain. Then he says, your faith is in vain. So if the preaching is in vain, then whatever you believed, if, if you believed what was preached, that faith doesn't matter. Will you put Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 up there for me, please? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we, have all, we also have believed in Christ, Jesus, in order to be justified by what? Faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's the point here? The point here is if we can't be justified by works of the law and we're not justified by faith, we're in trouble, man. We're in trouble, if there is no resurrection and our faith is in vain, we can't be, there's no salvation hope for us. There's none. Because the law, the works of the law aren't going to make us right with God. 
And if our faith in Jesus can't make us right with God either, we're, we're eternally, hopelessly lost. We are all just hurtling down a path to destruction if there is no resurrection of Christ from the dead. Having faith in Jesus that is not risen is like having faith that you can jump off the Empire State Building and flap your arms fast enough to fly. Because that faith doesn't matter. (laughs) And nobody in here can flap your arms fast enough to fly. That's how useless it is to trust in Jesus if he's not raised from the dead. Third conclusion that Paul comes to. This is actually worse than just having your faith, your preaching be in vain. This is worse. Those who are preaching a resurrected Christ are actually misrepresenting God. Look at verse 15. It says this. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So, so what Paul has been preaching and teaching, he's actually lying about God is what he's doing. And Paul, being an Old Testament scholar, would know hey, that's a violation of the third commandment. You're taking the name's Lord in vain. If you're claiming something that God did something that he didn't actually do, that's taking the name's Lord in vain. It's not, just saying, it's not just saying a bad word. That's not necessarily what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's attributing something to God that should not be tribu- attributed to God. He's actually taking the Lord's name in vain if he's preaching a cru- crucified Christ and he's not actually, cruci- or not actually resurrected. And if you, go to, if you go to Deuteronomy, I didn't give you these because we're not gonna go there. If you write down Deuteronomy 19... Verse 16 through 21, he's actually, it actually gives you the, uh, what should happen if someone bears false witness about another person. Paul's actually bearing false witness about God if he's, pre- if he's preaching that Christ is resurrected and he's not. Fourth thing, we are still in our sins If Christ is not resurrected, we're still in our sins. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, useless, and you are still in your sins. Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection are an unbreakable unit that must go together. If you have one without the other, if you have his death on the cross without the resurrection, we, we still, we're still in our sins. If we have a resurrection without the cross, then he didn't really die. And we're still in our sins. This is an unbreakable unit. It's like... Paul's crucifixion without a resurrection is like a car without an engine. It doesn't work. It's useless. It might, it might look pretty. You might paint it and, and it might, might have a cool color, but it's, it's really useless. We're still in our sins if Christ is not raised. Fifth thing. Dead Christians are eternally gone. Look at verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, perished eternally. If there's no resurrection, if Christ wasn't raised and there's no resurrection, then those who fall asleep, those who die in Christ, they perish and they're eternally gone. And this... This removes hope for loved ones that we've lost. Maybe even, maybe even unborn children that have been lost. All right. There's no hope if there's no resurrection. 
Will you put, uh, will you put 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 up there, please? Listen to what Paul says. Listen, listen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, as others who have no hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The only hope that we have to see loved ones again the only hope that we have after this life is if Christ truly was raised and if resurrection truly is possible. Final theological conclusion that Paul draws here. Christians are pitiful. Verse 19 if, we are in, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The word pitied there is miserable. If Christ is not raised, Christians are the most miserable people on the earth. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Because we have no hope. And listen, if there is no hope, if Christ is not raised, and we hope only in this life, then functionally, we become a prosperity gospel, is what it is. If we, Jesus just is a means to live our best life now, if, he, if what he did, if our hope in him is only for this life, prosperity gospel. We just go to him when we want something. We just rub the genie's belly when we need something. We just want health and wealth and live in, live in this life, and then that's it. Functionally, we become a prosperity gospel if Christ is not raised from the dead. I want to give you, I want to give you an illustration of this. We have a very dear family in this church very, very close friends of mine and Tracy's. <clears throat> and they have a baby boy. And he was, he was born by a miracle. He has a lot of complications. I, I, asked, I asked them if I could tell this story, by the way, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not breaching any trust. <clears throat> and... Ten days ago or so, they were at home. The, the baby had just had a surgery the day before, and in the middle of the night, the baby just coded. So they went to they, the baby. They went to Scottish Rite, and they were there, and they were they were taking turns sleeping and being awake. And then after they had been there a day, in the middle of the night. The mother, our friend, was holding the child in the middle of the night, and the child, the child just stopped breathing. That's Scottish right. Just in the middle of the night, stopped breathing. And they, they were freaking out. They were screaming for nurses to come. Nurses finally got there. So I went last week to sit with them and just talk to them. Just, just love them up. And at one point, the wife, she, we had been talking for a little while, she, she looks at me and she said something to the effect of, I don't know how people go through things like this without Christ. And I've been thinking about that. You have to have hope in something, in a situation like that. Let me, let me get, paraphrase. She would be okay with me paraphrasing what she said. 
She said, basically, in these moments, I don't need a prosperity gospel hope. I need a resurrection hope. I think, I think about biblical figures. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was going to slaughter his own son, his only son, the promised son. Before he walked up that mountain, he looked at his servants and said, we're both coming back down the mountain. Abraham believed in a resurrection. David, when King David's son died that he had with Bathsheba, he said, I have an expectation that I'm going to see my son again. That's the power of the hope that the resurrection brings. We just read it in 1 Thessalonians. We don't, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We do have hope. And it gets us through very difficult times. The hope that the resurrection brings us. Those are the theological conclusions that Paul draws if, they res if they're, the dead aren't raised. Now he had, I'm going to give it. So <clears throat> let me say this. If you look at the text, verses 12 through 19, Paul has a thought. And then when he gets to verses 20 through 28, he like goes on a rabbit trail. And then when he gets to verse 29, he comes back to the thought that he had in verses 12 through 19. So we're gonna, that's how we're going to work through it today. We're going to skip 20 through 28. We're going to go back to 29 through 34. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to come to the middle part of the text, okay? You'll see why, hopefully. Starting in verse uh, 29, Paul is going to give us three practical conclusions if the dead aren't raised. So the, the ones we've talked about were theological. Now he's going to give us practical conclusions if the dead are not raised. First practical conclusion, if the dead aren't raised, the sacraments that we participate in as a church are meaningless. They don't mean it. They have no meaning, no use at all in the church. Look at verse 29. This is... I know Brent's been saying, don't be weird, okay? But this is weird. What we're about to read is really weird. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Not me, I don't know what we're... If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Okay? <laughs> Nobody knows what the heck this means, okay? Nobody knows. I think Roman Catholics do something like this. I don't know. I'm going to give you the two primary interpretations of it, and you can pick which one you like if it really matters in your life at all. Because probably we're never going to baptize anyone here on behalf of the dead. So um, just so we're clear, don't get any ideas. First interpretation is that believers died in Corinth without being baptized. And so, they would baptize someone who's still alive vicariously on behalf of the person who died who was not baptized. Right, you're all looking at me like, that's the same thing I'm thinking. The second interpretation is that because believers' bodies are decaying and dying, they would baptize them to show that one day they would, their bodies would be made new. Either case, we know this. Paul doesn't condemn this, nor does he approve it. He actually says it to shame them because both of those things, either interpretation 
The only reason why you would do that is if the dead actually are raised. So this group of people in the church who don't believe that the dead are raised are baptizing people on behalf of dead people because they think that the dead are going to be raised. That's, really, that's literally what we're talking about here. So Paul is shaming them because they're not even being consistent in their unbelief that the resurrection is possible. Let's move on past this, please. <laughs> but also, if, if Christ is not raised and the dead are not raised, our, our sacraments are useless too. When we baptize people, what is that? We're, it's a sign that they've been buried with Christ in his death and that they've been raised with Christ, what? In his resurrection. So if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we just need to stop baptizing people. Will you put, will you put Romans chapter six up there, please? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We, we, were, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why we baptize people, because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But if he didn't, we're doing baptism 101 this morning. We just throw the sign away. The Lord's Supper. What do we do when we take the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11 says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, if the Lord's death didn't do anything at all because he's still dead, then why are we proclaiming it? We might as well just stop doing the Lord's Supper as well. If we're still in our sins, why would we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus? Right. The resurrection is the engine to the car. If you take out the engine, the car doesn't work. It's useless. Jesus' death is useless if the resurrection didn't take place. Right. Second practical conclusion that Paul draws if the dead are not raised. Evangelism is useless. Why would, why, would, why would we care if our neighbor knows Jesus or not? Why would we care if our family members know Jesus or not? He's going to say in a minute, we just, just eat, drink, and party it up, and then die. Woo! Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul is saying, why am I dying almost every day? Why is my life being threatened if there's no hope in the future? Why am I going around evangelizing people if there truly is no hope? We put 2 Corinthians chapter 11, please. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's Paul. Jesus took 39 lashes once. Five times Paul did. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was, one, uh, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers. <gasps> Why am I doing all of this if there's no hope that I'm going to be raised from the dead one day? If there's no resurrection, why am I giving my life to this? I 
I actually wrote this in my notes. I actually wrote, I was thinking for Paul. This is what Paul is probably thinking. Why in the scuba lawn am I risking my life everywhere I go? I know that's what Paul's thinking because he said that word in another place. Listen, because of Paul's faith in the full gospel, the resurrection of Christ, it motivated him to be willing to surrender his life for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. He knew, and we're going to get to this in a minute, he knew that Christ was the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. He knew that he would follow in Christ and his resurrection, even if men killed him. I would say, in our current day and age, Christians, Christians, we have way too much fear of man and not enough fear of God. Paul had no fear of man. His fear of God and his understanding and belief that he saw the resurrected Christ, no man could dissuade him from the calling that God put on his life. May that be so with us. Because here's the truth. We're going to fight with beasts in Atlanta, just like Paul fought with beasts in Ephesus. We're going to fight with beasts in Washington, D.C., just like Paul fought with beasts in Ephesus. We're going to fight. I said it last week. What are we standing on? Are we standing on the gospel? Are we ready for battle? Paul knew everywhere he went he was going to be in a battle. It didn't, not one time did he care. Literally the one time that he got stoned when we just read it, he, they threw him out of the city of Lystra. They threw him out of the city, thought he was dead. His disciples came out there, picked him up. He went right back into the city and preached the gospel more times. They, they, were, they had to be like holding him up. They, but he didn't care. He went right back into the city. And then by the way, just a little while later, he went back through all those cities again to say, he, because he wanted to strengthen the brothers. Golly, may this be us, please. That's who I want to be. I don't want to fear man. That's why churches today look no different than the world. Because they fear man. They're worried that they're going to say something that the Bible says and that somebody's going to get their panties in a wad. We can't be afraid of that. We're going to be held accountable to preach this, to do this. Are you, am I saying that there are churches that don't believe in the resurrection? Every church that's orthodox at all will tell you they believe that Christ was raised from the dead. But functionally and practically, they live their lives as if they don't believe that they will be resurrected following Christ. Finally, Paul's practical conclusion, if, Christ is, if, if the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, people are just going to live however they want to live. They're going to do what is right in their own eyes. Look at verse 32, second half of the verse. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fall with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, party it up. Yes, sir, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Guys, We've already seen in this church how people's morals are being ruined. We've already, Paul's given us specific examples that he's called out about how, how this lack of a belief in resurrection is causing people to just live how they want to live and sleep with their mother-in-law. Why is that happening? Because they don't believe that the dead are raised. Why are people getting drunk on the communion wine? Because we're just going to eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die. 
That's why. It's, it's what happens when they don't believe that the dead can be raised. This group of people that are acting this way, they're starting to impact, make an impact on others in the church that truly want to live in pursuit of holiness. And Paul is, Paul is he's not going to have that. You have people that want to live holy and righteous lives to be more like Christ, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and their, their good morals are being ruined because there's a group of people who don't believe that the dead are raised and they're acting like animals. Finally, look at verse 34. Paul challenges them. Wake up from your drunken stupor as what is right. Do not go on sinning. This is why theology matters. They have one doctrine that they're getting wrong and it's ruining the way that half the church is living their lives. Theology is not just something that we want to have in our heads. Our theology should drive how we live our lives. We can know all the right things, but if we're sleeping with our mother-in-laws, it doesn't really matter what you know. And holding her hand in the front row of the church. I just want to say one thing. I'm, I'm running low here. Talk on it. Paul says, I say this to your shame. I think, I think our world can use a little, a little shaming. Just, I know that's a controversial statement. I think shame is a good thing. Can be a good thing. I, we, have a, we have a society that's totally shameless, and, and it just is falling off the, the rails. No, we need to shame folks, man. Paul's shaming these people. We need to be, into some sh- we need to be in the shame game. Theological conclusions, Paul gave no, no resurrection from the dead. Practical conclusions, Paul gave there's no resurrection from the dead. Finally, this is, we're going to give you a big word here. Eschatological conclusions, because Christ is raised. Eschatology just means the final things, the end times. He gives eschatological conclusions starting in verse 20, of the fact that Christ actually is raised from the dead. And this is the best news that we're going to hear ever. First thing, Christ is the first fruits as the last Adam. Christ is the first fruits as the last Adam. Look at verse 20. But in fact, big Bible but. Who doesn't like a big good Bible but? But in fact, Christ has been raised. Yes, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean? In the Old Testament, the first fruits are was the was what the people of Israel gave to the Lord. So they would, they, would, they would plant, they would see, they would plant their seeds, and then as the harvest came, the first fruits, the first of the produce that they would get, they would give to the Lord. The first and the best they would give to the Lord in, in order that the Lord would bless them and bring the rest of the harvest. What a, what a picture this is of resurrection. All right? Christ He fulfilled both aspects of this. He actually was the offering to God and he's the one who guaranteed that the rest of the harvest would come. So he was both of them. He fulfilled both ends of it. That's incredible. He did this work as the last Adam. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death... 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I don't have time to give the illustration, but just know how incredible this is. Jesus walked right into the job that Adam was supposed to do, and he walked right into the consequences of Adam's poor choices and sin. He walked right into there. He walked right into death and brought life out on the other side of it. That's an incredible thing. He brought life out of death. Our Savior is alive, and we will follow him in resurrection glory. So when will this harvest be reaped? When will, when, will, when will we be raised? When will we follow Christ in his resurrection? Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then what? At his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returns, we will come out of the grave in resurrected glory to be with him for all eternity. You can, go to, you can go to John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. We don't have time to read it, but go there. It says, it says that when the Son of Man comes, he is going to call, he is going to speak, and all of the dead in the graves will rise from the grave and go to be with him in eternal glory. He's just gonna speak. He's gonna return, and he's, as the good shepherd, as we recognize the sh our shepherd's voice, he's gonna call us from the grave and we will rise to go and be with him. Amen. Christ is the first fruits as the last Adam. Finally, kingdom will be delivered. Look at the first half of verse 24. Then comes the end of what? Of everything. The end of time. End of history. When Jesus, now, if you're a pre-mill, pre-millennial in here, I'm sorry. It doesn't say Jesus returns and then there's, about, then there's like a thousand years and then the end comes. Nope. It says he comes, end. We can debate that a different time. I, I would be happy to do that with you. End, right? Jesus comes, <laughs> That's it. Okay. I want to give you, Paul gives us five things that must happen before he turns the kingdom, before Jesus turns the kingdom over to the Father. Five things. And we'll end here. Number one, verse 23, Jesus, has, Jesus returns. That must happen. That must happen before Jesus gives the kingdom to the Father. You can go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. It talks about when Jesus comes at a cry of command, those who are dead are going to rise. Those who are still alive in Christ are going to meet them in the air. Go check it out. That's what Jesus' return is going to look like. Second thing that will ha must happen before Jesus, the Son, turns over the kingdom to the Father, those in Christ will be resurrected. I'm just going to read this just because I, I can, and I'm going to take away from Brent's sermon next week, but that's okay. Verse 42 of chapter 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. That's what it's gonna be like. Third thing must happen before son turns the kingdom over to the father. All authority and power will be destroyed. Look at verse 24. 
kingdom over to the Father, destroying every rule and every authority and power. You can debate about what those things mean. I'm just going to quote John Calvin because I like the way he, I like what he said. There will be no more distinction between servant and master, king and peasant, between magistrate and private citizen. Nay, more, there will be an end put to angelic principalities in heaven and to ministries and superiorities in the church that God may exercise his power and dominion by himself alone. That's what this means. There is going to be no other power other than God reigning as the sole authority in eternity. Fourth thing that must happen, Christ's enemies will be destroyed. Look at verse 25 and 26. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Write down Psalm 110. That's your cross-reference. Read the whole thing. Prophecy about Jesus Christ. Fifth thing, all things will be brought into subjection to Christ. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, except, except the Father. The Father is not subject to the Son. And after these things take place, the Son will turn the kingdom over to the Father. And part of that delivering over to the Father is the Son himself subjecting himself under the Father. This is a tough one. Read verse 28 with me. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That's a mouthful. Let me say, let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that the son will be less than the father. We have to know that, okay? It's, it, this is saying that Christ in his human nature accomplished all that the father asked him to accomplish and then in the end of time, in his humanity and all that he has accomplished, he is going to turn that accomplishment that was in his humanity, he's gonna turn that over as part of the kingdom to the father, so that he may be all in all, so that God may be sovereign and sole authority over all things. May, may the resurrection of Christ and our subsequent resurrection following him, may that resonate in our hearts this morning to worship the finished work of our Savior. Let's pray. God, what a, what a beautiful doctrine it is of, of, of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of, of us who are in him and how we will follow him in his resurrection into glory to be with our Savior for all eternity. May we leave here encouraged and lifted up in that truth in the gospel this morning. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen.